is not the answer Never was, never will We will never live in peace unless and until We learn to love each other Not bomb, maim and kill Cause war is not the answer Never was and never will Think of all Hello, my name is Julie Estime with Massachusetts Peace Action and you're listening to Peace Zone. Peace Zone is a series featuring a wide variety of expert speakers who all want the same thing, peace. We'll do our best to keep you up to date with the most pressing issues of injustice. This week's episode comes from the Building Sustainable Security Conference that happened November 21st. This segment features Michael McPherson, Executive Director for Veterans for Peace and co-chair of St. Louis Don't Shoot Coalition. So Michael McPherson, he is the executive director of Veterans for Peace. He's a veteran of the Persian Gulf War, and his military career includes six years of reserve and five years of active duty service. And he's done a lot of social action, including for three years as national coordinator for United for Peace and Justice, a national organization. He's a member of Military Families Speak Out, and he's co-chair of the St. Louis Don't Shoot Coalition, which was formed in the aftermath of the police killing of Michael Brown Jr. in Ferguson, Missouri. He publishes the online McPherson Report, and he's launched an effort to ignite a new conversation about Dr. Martin Luther King's message and what it means to live in just and peaceful communities. So Michael will speak now, and then maybe we'll open it up for questions from Michael and the others. Thank you. Um, thanks. So uh, first thing, I didn't expect, obviously, to be speaking without um, Noam Chomsky. <laughs> oh, um, I'm a little, I was already intimidated, you know, we were speaking uh, with him, now speaking without him. And... <laughs> And with knowing that you all primarily were here to hear him, y'all, come on now. I mean, that's why I came. Okay? So, um, so you know, I, I, um, I don't know what to say. I, I'll just do the best I can here. <laughs> well, thanks. Thanks for the, the, you know, the cheering up and all that. So I do want to say that the... Uh, panel before this one was really incredible and yeah let's give it a big hand and there were a lot of awesome uh, framing and ideas brought to us um, that we obviously need to be thinking more deeply about and I think some of the things that I have prepared as remarks uh, weave very well into to what was being said um, one thing, there's a few things I want to say before I actually um, go into my prepared remarks. One thing that uh, Cassandra uh, said, I, I was uh, thanking her for her comments because I think if we, f if we really look at what this um, global system, not just the one we have in this country, but this global system is doing, um, it is trying to make us into, it's trying to make us into something, and some of us even more so. So uh, for African American community or, or people of color, black people specifically, the mass incarceration is, is probably the, the most acute example of, of making us into materials to, to make profit off of, you know, to use in, in certain ways. 
And so in a way it makes us forget who we wanted to be. And when she said at the end that um, she remembered who she, want, who she wanted to be when she was a little girl and now you, you see that person right now, um, we have to realize that's what's being done globally. And when we look at young men and women in inner cities, or, and now I'm talking about predominantly black men and women, but even white kids um, in Appalachia, or when you look at um, young people that are in ISO, and, and I say ISO instead of ISIS because ISIS is a goddess, and I'm not going to defile her name in that way. Um, it's the same thing that's being done uh, all around the world. Uh, so I just wanted to say that we, what, what we're trying to do is allow people to be people and allow people to wake up um, so they can be who they should be. So I just wanted to say that. The other thing is, you know, we talk about capitalism a lot, and we should. <laughs> However, I think it's something even, in, even deeper than that. Um, I think that is patriarchy is the, is the center uh, of the problem. And I, I need to say that because I, I think us men need to think about the role that we play because, you know, right now this global system, and I'm not trying to diminish the, the impact of capitalism, um, but, you know, capitalism really isn't that old of a system. You know, you, you know what I'm saying? It's not really that old. Um, and many, if not all, of the issues that we're facing were around before capitalism. Uh, maybe not as intense and maybe not as systemic. I don't know because I wasn't around then. Um, but they were there. Um, but patriarchy is, is, is very, very old. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, this, I guess, confrontation or conflicts are really between mad men. They're not between mad men and women. They're between mad men and, and women are, are used as material in, in this um, in this conflict. Uh, so we really need to think about that as men and what that means and not always try to push everything on capitalism. Um, we need to think about what role we, we play as men in this. Uh. And another thing I wanted to say about us being here at Harvard Law School, which, you know, that, that, that is, I guess, ironic or, you know, there's something wrong about it, but in some ways there's something right about it. Um, because it might mean that we're a little closer to that place we need to be to make the change that we want because we are in, in a place like this. At the same time, you have to be careful because one of the things our system does is can lull us into believing that it's more just than it is because you know, we're kind of close to, to power or whatever. So there's, uh, there's good and bad about it and I just think that you know, we should be aware of that because it provides opportunities that we need to take advantage of, but not allow it to lull us into something that's not, not real. So, thanks. Well, so I guess so far I'm doing pretty good, so. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sustainable security. Um, I think that if we are looking for a way to build sustainable security, that the most important components of this security are relationships. What are we building security against and what are we trying to protect? The answer is people. So if we are protecting people from people, we must understand that people must be incited and propagandized to hurt and kill each other. Fear is how you demonize to dehumanize and dehumanization is central to war. Today, ISIL 
is using tactics of dehumanization. And we know our system, I, I say our system, the system we live in um, uses those tactics. And I just talked about that. Mass incarceration is part of, of, of those tactics. Um, ISIL is using tactics of de dehumanization or creation of the other to build its caliphate. It also, it is also attempting to force the other or us to hate them so there can be a violent confrontation on their terms. The question before us today is how will we, will we react as a nation and world to this strategy of creating fear, dehumanization, and blocking of building relationships? And I thought I would talk, use them because of obviously what happened, uh, what, eight days ago. And since uh, that time, all we've been hearing is a constant drumbeat of war, 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 war nothing about peace uh, and trying to break down uh, this, this march to war. So I thought it would be important to, to at least address that. Um, and most important, what will we as peacemakers and justice seekers do at this critical moment? If we are to build sustainable security, we must first believe peace is possible. Because if we do not, we must believe war is inevitable which then follows that we will either be at war or in a state of preparing for war. That may have worked at one time, but today with the weapon systems we have at hand, nuclear proliferation that will continue if war is believed to be the inevitable norm, and the fact that common objects such as planes can be used to kill thousands of people or small arms to disrupt and terrorize whole cities, the cycle of war and preparing for war is not sustainable. Most important, we cannot effectively advocate for peace if we ourselves do not believe peace is possible. If you make these shirts, make it with a capital F because the reason we're veterans for peace, we're not veterans against war, we're veterans for peace. And, and our, our corporate, I'm sorry, we, we, we are a corporation. Our corporate name is with a capital F, not a small F, and, and there's a reason for that. But people say, what is that? And I tell them it's veterans for peace, and they're like, oh, that's great. But then they say, but, and then they go into all these reasons why peace isn't possible. And that happens probably 90% of the time. So if people don't believe peace is possible, and they just think it's ideal and it's a wonderful idea, but it's not going to happen, then they're not going to work for it. And you can't really provide them ideas to move forward towards peace until you overcome this idea that peace isn't possible. And if we, the people who are supposed to be advocating for it, don't believe it's possible, then you just can't advocate in an effective way. So that's the first thing that you must do. So while I am a veteran I am a and a member of Veterans for Peace, I did not come to peace, to peace movement in pursuit, of, in, in pursuit of resisting war. I came to the peace movement in pursuit of justice. When I got out of the military, and I had always been a kind of uh, advocate, even in the military, I would challenge my uh, commanders about um, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender people serving and having to argue with them about that. Um, so when I got out of the military, I wanted to address issues that were impacting my community specifically as a black person. And as I looked at things, I realized that, or it appears to me, that we're all struggling. If it's um, my, I have a sister and I have, a, I have two sisters and a mother, so I was looking at issues that impact women. And as I said, in the military, I was looking at um, issues that impact gay people, et cetera. I realized they were all struggling against the same monster, is what I call it. So in that case, I was looking for well, what's an umbrella way for that struggle? And I just came to the conclusion that peace would be the way to do that. 
Um, but then September 11 happened and I ended up in the traditional peace movement, um, obviously, which is, I feel is more of, of an anti-war movement and I'm looking for us to become a full-fledged um, peace movement. So because I believe no justice, no peace is more than a slogan, rather than an axiom or a self-evident truth, I believe working for justice is essential to working for peace. So while I know traditional peace movement activists foremost must work on issues of war, we must make wars visible and resist them. For if we don't, we, who will? So that's why we must do that. We must also work for peace, which means being advocates for justice. Our allies in the progressive social movements are working to achieve justice. We must join with them and in fact help weave a narrative that provides a vision where we are, all, where we are working together to achieve our vision of a just and peaceful world. So briefly, people, I, I think people think in narratives. Narratives and stories are the most influential force to motivate people to move in one direction or another. So ISIL or Dash is very much aware of this and is using this truth to grow and gain influence. The US and its allies have given ISIL plenty of story elements to build this narrative. But ISIL leaders have taken other elements such as the idea of a caliphate, the Quran, and the camaraderie as depicted in their recruiting films to build a vision of a new and grand future, giving meaning to its followers, most of whom feel isolated and living without meaning. Now Daesh have committed and true believers fighting and working to bring that future into fruition no matter the cost. So I use ISO as an example because of their spectacular success due to their effective use of a narrative in which the US and its allies have done an awesome job of playing the role of antagonists in their story. But dash or no dash, what is our story? To me, it is clear we have very strong elements for our peace and justice narrative. During the past 14 years, we have seen the rise and fall of several movements. Peace, immigrants, Occupy, environmental, currently the Black Lives Matter, and more and than I have named. Each one of these movements are struggles for justice in one form or another. So how do we develop a broad spectrum movement? by weaving an all-encompassing story that communicates our goals as we struggle against a common adversary, the pursuit of greed and power that wants to keep us separate, build walls between us, and keep us from building relationships. We must understand that the xenophobic mindset that uses immigration to galvanize political movement, fear to cause denial of Syrians to enter the U.S., preference for Christian refugees and a registry for Muslims are the same voices that deny the legitimacy of the movement for black lives and the need to address racism in our nation today. They are the same voices that deny the need to address climate change and beat the drums of war. And while many of us do see these connections, there are more than a few of us that on the central question of race cannot disconnect from their own fears and are trapped in historical racial inertia. Many white people on the left found great hope in the Occupy movement, which was predominantly young, white, and middle class. Undoubtedly, they saw themselves in those committed young people. Yet many of these same left activists have found it difficult to understand or support the movement for black lives. But who represents the 99% more than black youth whose unemployment usually runs at a rate twice as high as that of their white counterparts? Their parents, according to a March 2015 Forbes article, face a huge economic gap. The median white household income at $111,146 in wealth holdings in 2011 
compared to $7,113 for the median black household and $8,348 for the median Latino household. And earlier, one of the uh, presenters talked about how the top so many family members all together have more wealth than all black um, households altogether. Um, for me, this is a clear example of how racism blocks our ability to build the kind of movement we need, especially with the fact that U.S. foreign policy is most rationalized through, through a xenophobic lens as our wars are predominantly waged against non-white people and it is, it is okay to kill people of color here at home as it is okay to kill them around the world. We must understand that we cannot have sustainable security if we do not address racism and fear of dark bodies here at home. Until it is broken, American the American, until the American racial paradigm is broken, it will be used to dehumanize people around the world. The words kraut, slant eyes, gook, sand nigger are needed to convince people to kill them. So we cannot have sustainable security if people do not believe they can have peace at home. And that was one of the ideas that was put before us earlier today. If people do not see peace in their communities or at least a path to peace in their daily lives, how can they believe peace is possible with strangers thousands of miles away? That's just totally impossible. And as was said, um, if people are struggling to make it on a day-to-day -day basis, any issues that aren't in their face are gonna to recede to the background. Doesn't mean people don't care doesn't mean people don't want to see peace, but they, they just can't put the energy up to, um, to address it. So security starts at home. We must work to address peace both at home and abroad. They are inextricably linked. So is peace possible? Yes, I believe it is. Even in these times when the drumbeats of war are pounding louder and louder, I know it is possible. Humans, with all of our faults, are special in a number of ways. We can adapt to most anything by either changing our behavior or changing the environment around us or in combination. We can even place an environment around us. No other animal could possibly go into outer space. We are also the only, hum only animal that can dream it and then make it happen. Human humanity has the unique ability to recognize threats and make complex plans to address them. Disease is perhaps the best example. It took us thousands of years of cumulative knowledge, but we have become aware and done incredible things to address diseases. And war is a kind of disease. And one other thing about war, because we think, you know, we're always talking about things in ideological um, and economic perspectives, and, and we should, but I think we also need to look to the past and understand that war in some ways is something deeper than that, because you know, the, um, many societies in the past had a god of war, just like they had a, a, god, a goddess of love. So we need to learn something from that because they didn't just do that. And it wasn't, you know, we shouldn't look to them. It's oh, primitive. They didn't know. It was really about economics. You know, we shouldn't do that because they, they know, they, have, they had knowledge that we need to learn from, right? So there's a reason why there were gods of war, because war kind of infiltrates the mind and takes over, and, and then people become like, it becomes like a film, and, and then it's, they, people lose their minds, you know? And that's what's being, trying to be done to us today, and we need to be aware of that and disconnect from just looking at it from an ideological, economic perspective and look at the human, the human aspects of that. It's very important to do that. Mm.
Um, I also believe we can take heart in our own nation's history. Though full of dark chapters, there is a torch that lights a path for us. I know it is possible because my ancestors persevered the Middle Passage, struggled through slavery and Jim Crow, and rose up through a relatively nonviolent people's movement to change relationships in this country between white and black people. And one thing that I think is important that's happening right now, at least from my perspective, the civil rights movement was um, successful because black people decided that they weren't going to take it anymore, that they were going to be different. And, and they, black people changed their behavior first. Then it made white people change their behavior. White people weren't going to change their behavior. You know, I, you, we, black people cannot wait for white people to change, right? Because white people are not going to change unless black people do something. And that's what's happening now. The young people in Ferguson stood up and said, we're not going to do this anymore. We're not going to take it anymore. You can't treat us like this anymore. And then it made everybody else have to do something different. And that's what we're doing. We're saying, we're not going to do it anymore. We're not going to take it anymore. And people have to react to us. It's called taking, the, in the military, it's called taking the initiative and making people react to you. So that's, that's what made the civil rights uh, movement, in my estimation, um, successful as it, as it was. And while we have, still have a long road as evident by the current movement for black lives and resistance to the change it demands, the sons and daughters of former enslaved people and their former masters to struggle for a better tomorrow for all of us. And I stand here before you and with you today as part of that struggle. We need only to look to ourselves and work to weave a vision and articulate a narrative of working together for peace and justice and living that narrative as we articulate it. So finally, at this critical moment, we must help others see that peace is possible. So I'm going to ask you to do two things. And these are things that you don't necessarily, it'd be better if you organize together to do it. But we all can do these things individually. And, and I think it's important, too, to understand that individual action and things you do in your own life in, in, in whatever sphere of influence you have can be the most powerful thing. You don't necessarily need other people to do those things. So one thing is to go talk to people and expose them to the need for a new vision and path that leads away from war and towards peace. Do not allow ISIL to cause us to hate them. And don't allow those who are trying to make us hate ISIL allow us to, do, to, to make us hate them. Um, do not allow them to become the other beyond redemption to be killed. Um, talk and share. Not argue and not try to convince people. Just talk and share. Plant seeds. And do that in places, because we're talking today, we're talking to the choir. There might be a few people in here that don't agree with us, that came to you know, see what we're talking about. And there might be some undercover cops in here or something like that, you know, because we're so dangerous. And we are dangerous because we're trying to change everything. You know, so we are dangerous. Um, but, but generally, we talk to the choir. And when we're standing on the street corners, you don't have a chance to really engage with people, you know, to address their fears and, and, and really plant seeds. So we have to go and talk to people in places that we usually don't talk to people. And what I'm, going to, what I'm doing with Veterans for Peace is asking us, because I think we're uniquely positioned to do some of that as veterans, to go like to the Kiwanis Club and the Optimist Club, and to every city has its um, um, lawyers bar you know, association and all those things. So make a list and you know, call them. They're always looking for people to talk for 10, 15 minutes at their meeting because they don't have nothing to talk about. So, you know, so 
go there and, and plant some seeds. The second thing, which I think in some ways, well, they're, they're equally important, is to reach out to our Muslim brothers and sisters and build relationships that you might not already have. And I don't necessarily mean with the, yeah, that's, thank you. I mean, most of us probably have relationships with Muslim brothers and sisters through struggle, you know, through struggling over Palestine and things of that nature. But take that next outer ring to um, brothers and sisters who are not part of the struggle and, and, and are in fear. Um, because we must do this before something happens here, and then we will be scrambling to show the solidarity we should have already been showing. And, and the thing is, look at what's happening right now and the attack that happened eight days ago didn't even happen here, right? So if, it, if something similar or larger or whatever happened here, things are gonna get really crazy. So that's why I think it's imperative that we, we do the reaching out now. It is the job of activists to make the impossible possible. Politicians just work in the realm of what's possible. We make the impossible possible. That is what we do. So it is up to us. Thank you. Thank you, Michael McPherson, for featuring in the seventh segment of Building Sustainable Security. For more information about upcoming events, visit www.masspeaceaction.org. Thanks for listening and have a great rest of your day.